Hello, everyone, and thanks for giving us your time today for VR Download. Each week, we meet here in VR to discuss the next generation of personal computing. My name is Ian Hamilton, and I'm in the United States, joined by David Heaney in Northern Ireland. VR brings us together into this broadcast studio where we've got cameras, a TV, and tablets for our notes and comments. We syndicate VR Download to all podcast platforms and encourage our audience to become Upload VR members. This week, we're sponsored by Veil VR, which just released an early access on Steam. It's a first-person shooter with immersive physics, full-body animations, and skins. You can climb, vault, ride zip lines, and defy gravity on jump pads to achieve victory in this 5v5 competitive shooter. David, what are we going to talk about today? It really does sound like it's becoming my catchphrase, but we genuinely do have a lot to talk about today. We're first going to talk about virtual desktop reverting that controversial internet connection requirement. Then we'll talk about Quest's new app-to-app travel API that lets developers build portals from one app to another. We'll talk about Quest Pro finally getting support for shared space co-location, so multiple headsets in the same space. We'll talk about Meta's comment about the prospect of Automated room scanning for mixed reality rather than having to mark it manually. We'll talk about Meta claiming it created the supply chain for Quest Pro's lenses from scratch and hinting that those same lenses will be in Quest 3. We'll talk about Meta saying that retinal resolution is on the product roadmap, not just an area of research. Microsoft teasing HoloLens 3 improvements, but saying it's not actually coming yet. HTC teasing their new headset, which seems to be a Quest Pro competitor with some extra features of its own. And finally, the massive, massive news that after a decade, John Carmack is leaving Meta to fully focus on his AGI research startup. Yeah, a wildly large week for us. We expect it to be an extra long episode. I noticed Guy Godin is in our comments. I wanted to say thank you to Guy for joining our discussion previously on this and to our Upload VR community for engaging in conversation, careful conversation about piracy and the value of our VR headsets working offline. Heaney, what changed here? So as we talked about last week, Virtual Desktop released that update where you needed to be connected to the internet each time you were establishing a connection with your PC. And what's changed in the new update is that, as Geese says in our comments, you now only need to launch the app connected to the internet once per app update, not every time you connect to your PC. So once you update that app and you've connected to the internet once, on that updated version, you can continue to use it offline. For example, if you have a laptop and you like to play PC VR on the go. So this was something that, you know, Godin clearly saw a lot of pushback from customers and decided to implement a new secure local fallback system to let those people continue to use the app in the way they're using it before. Yeah, and he is in our comments reiterating what Heaney just said, but I will read it out directly just to make sure we've got his direct quote there. To be clear, you'll still need to launch the app once while connected to the internet whenever you get an update. But once you do, you'll be able to use the app offline as much as you want. That was seemingly a pretty critical update for a lot of genuine members of the community. We had the discussion last week about how sometimes people complaining about these things could have less than... Uh, honest intentions, but I think there were enough people in this community and asking for this update to basically convince Guy out there that he needed to 
come up with another solution that worked for those users. I'm just so appreciative that we've had this kind of discussion back back to back, week to week. It's kind of the perfect perfect thing for us to cover on our show that affects a lot of users out there and really interesting to see that kind of feedback feed right back from the community back to the developer and back to a new update on the store yeah a lot of what i saw customers saying were you know why should paying customers be punished for the actions of people who didn't pay so yes obviously the change would have hurt pirates but it also would have hurt people who paid so it's great to see that Gee come up with a solution here that lets customers still use it offline in those use cases where people find that important, while still having some system to verify that they've actually purchased it. It does seem like a best of both worlds solution. And obviously, they still get that benefit of last week's update that improved PC VR performance by up to 20%. Yes, that is a significant update, and we will be looking for those next updates from Virtual Desktop. I think we're ready to move on to the next subject here pretty quickly, but I do want to take a moment to say thank you to Vale VR for sponsoring us. Vale VR was built to support competitive integrity. That includes standardizing player height and preventing play-space cheats. Developers there want you to trust that every match will be competitive and fair. It's available now on Steam, and their next eSports tournament starts in January, so get ready. You can find out more about Vale VR in the description of our video. Any comments you want to respond to before we move on to the portals? I'm just saying a lot of people here shouting out a thank you to Guy for this update, saying that they really appreciate this compromise or the solution, however you want to say it. And, you know, Sexy Sexy Bicycle, for example, saying that it's great to see Guy listening to feedback and quickly addressing concerns, once again, proving to be the VR dev G-O-A-T. Yeah, several commenters in there all piping up. Very cool to see everyone giving that feedback. So Quest developers can now add portals to other apps. Can you walk us through this, David, and... Can you explain how far along this gets us toward that dream of the metaverse? So this builds on top of a feature of the Quest platform that not many people actually know about called Destinations. And this is a developer feature that is how if you're in a party with people and you launch into a multiplayer session directly, that's powered by Destinations. Destinations lets the developers kind of mark out to meta different worlds, levels, lobbies, and sections of their app so that the system can directly launch you into them. It's also how, if you've ever used a feature where you can click the menu button and then invite a friend into your session, they join straight in instead of having to go through the app's menu. And so what this update this app-to-app -app travel API update does is allow you to build a portal from one app that launches to a destination inside another. The one barrier to the adoption of destinations is obviously that it isn't cross-platform. So yes, developers can implement it even if they are on platforms, but most of them aren't going to want to spend time implementing something that doesn't impact all of the VR and non-VR platforms they're on. But for apps that really are focused on the Quest platform and apps that are trying to make it as simple as possible to join your friends, Destinations is one of those things that makes it so much quicker to jump into a multiplayer session. The use cases here are potentially endless. You know, People are talking about the idea of if a developer has 
multiple games, you can kind of launch from one into the other. If you are in some sort of sporting game and then you want to have an, a, a tournament, you could then create a portal to an after party in a different app that's more focused around socialization. So it'll be really fascinating to see what this does. Obviously, the big limit, though, is still that you will have to have the app that you're trying to travel to installed. If you don't, you're still going to be greeted by that same old-fashioned store, purchase, download, update, install system. It's not like WebXR, which is arguably kind of a more true vision of a seamless metaverse where you can just quickly launch from one experience to the other. It's still limited by that old App Store model that means we're not really in the metaverse yet. Yeah, I'm seeing a couple comments here. Andrew asked whether it supports WebXR at all and, and whether that's part of this system. And I saw someone else comparing this to the deep linking inside of Android. This is the equivalent of deep linking on the Quest platform, but now represented as a portal in your space. But to that question of WebXR, do you think that those can be endpoints to this eventually? So just on that first point, yes, the destination system on Quest is essentially the deep linking system within Quest. Within Quest. So this is a very much so equivalent to deep linking to within an app. As for WebXR, theoretically, you should be able to do that already by just having the app open a URL. I haven't actually tested what the Quest system will do if an app tries to open a URL, but that's something I'll definitely test right after this show because that is actually a fascinating question. Yeah, I think that's where this gets really interesting because you could have a lot of destinations boot you out to a WebXR home space of some kind if you don't have that pre-built world. And I, I do wonder whether that can sort of lead the way in showing how this overall metaverse concept, Heaney and I have joked and talked about over time, how like the visual indicators here on this system could, you could have like a loading icon go around the portal if you've got an app-based world and you could, you know, click the visit world button and then either have a payment API pop up so you can actually buy the world and install it into the background through this whole system. But there's still more user experience that needs to be tapped onto this in order for it to be workable. Yeah, so just to be clear, the example that's shown in this image is just an example of a general VR portal. The, the API here lets developers write code that launches into a destination in another app. The portal itself would be handled by the developer. It'll look different in every app. It doesn't even have to be a portal. It could just be a 2D user interface that lets you launch. It's just that those developers have the capability to do that now. But I, I very much agree with you that it would, be, it would be fantastic if the app could query the installation status of another app so that you can do exactly that, have a portal that around the edge shows the installation time rather than having to boot you out to this 2d user interface that's completely separate from the app that would be great yeah and i saw this fundamental question here leah uh, from keith saying wait a minute these portals aren't going to turn into ads right and i love that question because it does this this reminds me a little bit of the pop-ups now that we get on every website our own website included that alert you to cookies and that sort of thing. This does feel like it could end up being a similar sort of core functionality. You can imagine you going to a variety of worlds that either have no portals in them or portals everywhere. And some of those portals could be to places that are on the web and easy to get to. But how exactly do you alert a person that they have to pay for that uh, when they get to the other end of that. I mean, you see all across the web right now, people warning people before they click 
that what they have to click on is subscription based. Like that's almost web etiquette 101 now across a lot of different social networks. And it's taken years to get used to that sort of thing. This looks to me like, I don't know, the, the equivalent of links in VR or something very close to this. Yeah, it'll definitely be interesting to see what business models emerge around these ideas. Are we ready to talk about shared space co-location? Yeah, this is a long time coming. So Quest Pro now supports shared space co-location. Heaney and I have been following this for quite some time. I remember, I think it was 2018, that Meta had an entire giant arena set up for co-location at one of their Oculus Connect events. And now it's taken us this long. We've reached out to Meta multiple times over the years to find out where this API was. They quietly said that basically nothing's being done on that. And then here we are. It is actually live. How does this change things for developers? And how many people do you expect to support this, Heaney? Or David, I should say. I'm going to keep saying Heaney. I apologize for saying Heaney. But I am going to get better at saying David because we realized that we now have Henry Heaney and my last name is Hamilton on the team. So we're going to give Heaney his first name back. Yeah, it got, it got downright confusing in our internal communication systems to be able to quickly determine who was saying what. So that's something we'll we'll try to use, but it, it doesn't particularly matter. So what this does is lets developers easily on a system level build apps that take place in the same physical space. So you have multiple headsets with the same coordinate space using this new feature called Shared Spatial Anchors. Now, this is only supported right now on Quest Pro, but Meta says that in early 2023, it will also come to Quest 2. So we've got a a great question in the comments to start. uh, Artful saying that, There are already apps that do this, such as Space Pirate Trainer Arena. But what those apps have you do is manually calibrate the space between two players. So you have to tap the same uh, physical location. Other apps have their own kind of implementation of this where you put the headsets together. What Stirred Spatial Anchors does is let this happen without that manual calibration step so that all you have to do is one player defines the uh, play space and, they, and from the other it's just a synchronization process that means it removes that kind of friction it means that if you come back to play again you don't have to worry about the, the calibration drifting it's all handled by the system itself uh, what is the mention here of echo arena because uh, i think that might be a mix up there but space pirate arena is the key one and yeah Uh, That is a whole manual process that can now be handled by the platform level. The thing that is very tricky from a developer's perspective is that, to my knowledge, not a lot of these co-location-based experiences are making money. And until they make money, uh, it's scary to kind of go down the route of supporting too many platform level features, you know, one platform level features that uh, tie you to that platform. So uh, there's actually an advantage or a, a, a question about time investment involved in these devs' decision making of do I go out and adopt the platform specific feature or do I continue using my own hand-built solution, which might port to other platforms more easily. Isn't that sort of the the issue right now? Yeah, well, in general, co-located experiences are very niche because it's very rare that two people will have 
you know, two friends will both have a modern VR headset that are both going to be able to get into the same physical space and play it in the first place. So that's, it's a very small market in general, but I would expect we will see some developers go to tailor this market. For example, in this video, you can see Meta's demo of this called Slimeball, where it's just a simple tabletop game that you're kind of playing against another player across the table. I'd say instead of seeing sort of, uh, you know, very detailed, high-budget games try to address this small market. We will see simple games like this. We'll probably see a handful at most on the platform. And again, right now, it wouldn't make sense at all because it only supports Quest Pro. But once you see this start to support Quest 2, that's where it gets a lot more appealing. And in general, I think developers are really just going to be experimenting with this feature for now because the real market for this is going to be Quest 3, where you get color pass-through in a headset that's actually affordable. Yeah, it's really interesting to think about the way this, it, it opens up the door for a new category of apps, but there's a lot of existing apps that we kind of would expect them to have this feature built in as well, but it may not be a high priority compared to other things. So it's going to be a, a, a it's going to be a while for our apps out there that we know and love to support this feature. And I love Guy's joke here. Wait, I thought it was a headset for professionals, uh, kind of pointing out the mismatch there between this feature being such a big uh, literal game changer uh, versus uh, this kind of being service you know, to professional users, isn't it? Well, yes, but at the same time, as we said in our review of Quest Pro and as many others said, it's both a headset for professionals and it's a development kit for future consumer headsets. If you are a developer that wants to build games in the future that take advantage of color pass-through mixed reality or face tracking or eye tracking or any of these advanced features on Quest Pro, you can get a year advantage over any developer that's going to sit there and wait for Quest 3 to come out to develop this. And you obviously get a kind of practicality advantage over developers that are using the grainy black and white pass-through on Quest 2 to prototype this. Because, you know, something like this is just not going to be a great experience in that grainy black and white pass-through. But again, this isn't a uh, a production game. This is just a developer demo app that you can get on App Lab. And I believe, although I haven't double-checked this, they will also be making Source available for this demo. James making the comment that devs are subsidizing the Quest 3 production costs. I kind of think that's a funny way of looking at it. And then uh, James uh, also adding that maybe dev kits should be given away like Valve. And Meta does have uh, big start programs for early devs where they do kind of do hardware and other types of grants uh, for some of their users. But James is bringing up a great point about how Valve back when the HTC Vive uh, sort of hit the market, they handed out a lot of dev kits to a very wide range of people, the, the very earliest Vives. And uh, it, it did lead to an entire generation of demo experiences hitting VR that was just absolutely incredible. And I do kind of feel like we need that for mixed reality too. We need that kind of same level of experimentation to get that across that these are really important features. Well, yeah, as you say, though, we, we know that Meta sends out plenty of free dev kits. We know that they've done that for Quest Pro. It's very likely they'll do that for Quest 3. And it's not like this is instead of, it's just that now a whole larger range of developers, developers that wouldn't have got access to the developer kit had it only been through a kind of pre-accessed grant program can just get one for the $1,500. 
I like AKA's comment that you know you've made it if a hardware maker sees you dev kits. And it's it's such a simple comment out there, but honestly, uh, that, that it is like kind of a really good sign. I've talked to enough developers to know that uh, the devs that start getting seated those hardware, you know, they're they're a different level of quiet about their partnerships than devs who aren't at that level. And it's because they know that they've uh, built a relationship with their platform provider that uh, could give them an edge over their competition. Well, I think that's what was very special about the way Valve gave out dev kits for those HTC Vives. It wasn't that it was more than any other company. I would suspect there probably have been more free Quest Pros given out than HTC Vives were. It's that it was so in the open. Developers weren't required to keep this a secret. They were allowed to post unboxings. They were allowed to post you know, the experimentation they were doing and the, and the prototypes. And that's what really built up hype and interest and you know got people interested in the idea of VR before it launched. So obviously now that we're in a much more mature market where these things are you know serious products that are competing against other companies there's not really that same open experimentation but i would love to see that happen again in future it would be great to be able to see this kind of thing months before the products actually emerge yeah i and i i think what made that more uh that memory or, or what happened there more significant in people's minds that was basically one or two people at valve shotgunning out a lot of those kits, right? Uh, Chet, obviously, at Valve at the time, was instrumental in jump-starting a lot of early devs' uh, work in room-scale, hand-controlled VR because they got those kits out. And more or less, uh, if you convinced that one or two people inside of Valve that you were worthy of uh, receiving something, that that was the ticket. And I know there's a lot of uh, horror stories out there from devs who just cannot get a developer relations contact who uh, helps them and, and shepherds them and opens, you know, owns the their project and keeps coming back to them because there is so much shifting inside of Meta every six months. The team shift, the people shift, and that can, you know, that's burned a lot of people who had someone who believed in them and then that person uh, left or went to a different role. Um, we ready to move on to the next subject here? Yeah, I think we can talk about that automated room scanning tease. Yeah, this is another one. We've got several sort of fundamental building block feature updates that we're going to cover this week. And this is another one where Meta is saying that their goal is to have automated room scanning for mixed reality. Why don't you walk us through what this is, David, and then tell us sort of what it unlocks, because it's still head scratching to me that this isn't built in to every headset that ships. Yeah, we were very critical in our review of Quest Pro about the fact that this is still a manual process. So if anyone listening or watching isn't aware, if you want to play a room-aware mixed reality game on Quest Pro, and by that I mean where the virtual objects will collide with and appear to be behind real furniture like your couch or your desk or kind of collide with walls or your ceiling, you have to actually manually mark them out. So you have to, in the same way that you paint out your guardian space, you have to precisely mark out the corners of all of these different pieces of furniture, of your uh, doors, of your windows. It is a multi-minute process that you will always kind of be a bit frustrated about because you can never quite get it right. And 
It's something that isn't required on HoloLens 2. It isn't required on Magic Leap 2. It isn't required on Apple's iPad Pro or their iPhone Pro because those devices all have a depth sensor. And as we all know, the depth sensor was dropped from Quest Pro in the months before it shipped. So Meta is having to try and do all of this in software using machine learning, computer vision techniques. And so the the comment here this week from Meta is that they say, in the future, our goal is to deliver an automated version of scene capture that doesn't require people to manually capture their surroundings. And it's so strange that Quest Pro is so marketed as a mixed reality headset, but didn't launch with this feature. And I really would argue that Quest Pro is not a complete product until it has this feature. It is, to me, still a beta system until it has this fundamental feature. Yeah, a really wonderful summary there, Heaney. You have a very complex subject. So uh, we're gonna we're probably gonna keep coming back to this sort of discussion again and again until this feature becomes absolutely built in, locked in. I have tried to do the markout process multiple times and I, I love Heaney just saying you will probably be frustrated because I've had multiple times where I've gone through my entire living room area and gotten to the last wall or two, and it says, oh, you've got too many walls. And I just spent a good two or three minutes going through and marking out every wall systematically through my house, only to get uh, to the software limit I didn't know was there. And yeah, that has to change uh, as soon as possible. This is actually, uh, this is video of me going through that process. And if I go through and hit every single wall, I will, yeah, hit the limit of doing too many walls and being very frustrated. But the the long conversation we had, Heaney, about this was this is part of, you know, it's one thing to statically go and mark everything out. And then it's another, an entire another thing entirely to have active, updated, always on collision warnings. So having those cameras, not only knowing where your head is, in the room space, not only knowing where your hands are with all of these intricate movements, but also actively warning you about at any given moment, whether someone walks into your room, whether you've gotten too close to an object that has since moved since your last time uh, marking this out, or whether an animal or like a kid comes into your space and you're walking over them or going to trip over something. That's a fundamental, really, really necessary feature, but it's completely separate from this process. And we also need the active collision system too, don't we? Yeah, um, I always appreciate how you're jumping you're sort of three steps ahead here, but it definitely is going to be one of those things that in future headsets is a requirement. There, These headsets are going to gain more and more awareness of, as you say, not only the static environment, your furniture and your walls, but eventually, yes, the dynamic environment too. So moving object tracking where you can use any object in the room as a controller by picking it up, having the headset automatically detect its geometry and then track it in real time. And yes, obviously there's safety applications there. If you have a person or a pet walk into the room, today on Quest you can use Space Sense, but all that really is is just an edge detection algorithm that has that will bring up far too many other things you don't want to see, such as just elements of your walls and furniture that are already in your guardian space. As I pointed out to you when we talked about this privately, the problem there is that it has to be 100% reliable or 
Nothing's 100% reliable, 99.9999 reliable, because if it ever fails, if it ever fails to detect your kid and you accidentally punch your kid in the head because you've trusted this system, you will never trust it again. So that means that you have to have this always running high quality computer vision algorithm that is ready to detect any moving object in your space. And also it can't have the other issue of false positives. You don't want to have constant interruptions because they thought your shadow was a person coming into the room. I expect this is something that we will see as a built-in feature of headsets, but not quite yet. We're still in the very, very early era of these headsets, knowing more about their physical environment. ACP, uh, summarizing a lot there with this comment, there are two types of schools, Apple waiting until all software and hardware works flawlessly, but years with no actual product versus Meta, which releases everything with no good apps or finished features, which is right. That does really summarize a, a different approach here that's happening. And I, yeah, I appreciate the, the we're looking forward and we're looking back, right? So I think it's funny looking back uh, at some of our comments that we've had over the years. It's always cracked me up. Uh, Palmer Lucky, when he was at Oculus in the early days, used to take issue with the room scale uh, branding that was used by HTC and Valve to basically differentiate what was possible out of the box with that system. You had room scale VR out of the box in 2016 with Vive, but I would still argue that branding, that room scale experience is absent this automatic setup as well as active collision detection, which I would argue are necessary in order to start using that branding of like room scale. To say something is room scale, it should have those things as part of it. But we had VR getting out to us as quickly as possible, and those things weren't part of the experience. So uh, it this this little bit of moment, you know, this development shows we're on the path. This is meta confirming that they are on the path. This is a top priority, more or less. The fact that they would come out at the end of 2022 and say, we're working on this indicates to us as users, buyers of these devices, they're prioritizing this as a key feature to add as soon as possible, aren't they? Yeah, and it really needs to be there for Quest 3's launch. It would be a huge feel if they come along at the end of next year and launch Quest 3 and they market it also as a mixed reality headset because it also has these color pass-through capabilities, but it doesn't have this true awareness of your room. I think Lucky's contention with the room skill comment, as far as I can remember, there was more about the fact that very few people actually had a very large space beside their PC. So obviously now in the era of wireless quest, you can find the largest open area in your home. And many people do have at least some space that's a room skill. But I think he was kind of suggesting back then that, you know, in their research, most people beside their PCs have, you know, a meter and a half of space either way at most. It's funny. I'm seeing people talk about uh, the tr- the wire is the only thing you'd want to track. That's funny. Uh, we're referring to the way HTC was. I'm going to uh, read out Thomas Van Bowles' question or comment. He is the developer of Cubism, for those who aren't familiar. And they had this tip uh, of saying that if you hit the limit, this is using this room setup on Quest, you may need to clear all data. Rooms appear to compound with walls and furniture. So if you've done setup multiple times, it adds up. But yeah, those limits shouldn't be there in the first place. So if anybody is encountering the same problem I talked about, that might be an interesting solution to check out. 
Yeah, I think when if Quest 3 does get that much more powerful, three years more advanced chip, like like all the rumors and all the evidence suggests, this is something that will be a lot more practical for Meta. It may be that Quest Pro's solution and software here ends up being kind of very slow and not as accurate as what they'll be able to do on that newer chip. Because yes, there are these huge advancements in CPU and GPU expected, but What's it going to advance far more and what has really been just exponentially advancing in mobile chipsets is the NPU, the neural processing unit that does those uh, machine learning tensor calculations much, much faster. Thomas uh, adding that uh, they're working on a room scale mixed reality game right now and hitting that limit a lot too. I think that's the laser game, uh, if I recall, where you, you've got to more or less dodge lasers. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong there, Thomas. And uh, very funny, I would check out... Uh, I'd be curious if you check out Laser Mazer over on the App Store because I've been meaning to go check that out. But that's from the Mighty Coconut devs before they went in to build Walkabout. And it was absolutely fascinating to have this discussion with the Walkabout devs because it's all of this is related in a certain way where uh, people are talking about the average size of rooms. And it goes back to that thing of just this fails you once and it's you know, the, the feature is dead to you. Um, I think the same goes for some of this, right? When I don't use room scale much, I don't need to go and walk around much. Most often I'm using the system in a seated, relaxed way. But when I want to go beyond that one time every few weeks that I want to get up and walk around the room, I really want that feature to be there and instantly accessible. And if it isn't, I might not ever use that feature again. Yeah, I think the the other way that this automatic room scanning that's coming in future could really change the game here for room scale is that you can then use a lot more of your room. Because right now with Guardian, the system where you just kind of draw a boundary around you, it goes from the floor to infinite height. There's no actual difference of height. So if you have a bed or something that you could easily actually reach your arms over, you have to mark that as if it's a wall. There's no distinction between a coffee table that's two feet high and a wall that's 10 feet high. But if you have a system like this that can reliably mesh out the furniture in your room, it could replace Guardian. It means that you would know, then you can still have a warning when you come up to a wall, but instead of being warned about an imaginary wall in front of something like a couch, you can just reach over and look down and see that, yes, there's a blue boundary below you, but not above you. And that lets people who have a small space access a lot more of these kind of room scale experiences. And that's what I'm really excited about, because I think it is beyond time that we get rid of this essentially 2D Guardian. Andrew asking, Ian, did you say you mostly play seated? I play mostly standing in a room. I'm, I may have oversimplified it. You know, I go through periods, months even, where I'm mostly standing, mostly room scale, mostly seated. And it depends sort of what game has got my attention at, at a given time. Um, the... That the reason I bring Walkabout up is so all the time, right? It's such a great example. But uh, I love that we've got Thomas in our comments who's building this this maze, this laser maze game where you're going to be going around lasers in your room. The example that I got out of Mighty Coconut, right? People, that game didn't work on phone screens. It didn't work. You know, people don't want to look awkward walking around with that system. And uh, it 
I love that the next game they made still requires you to kind of stand up. Like you could play walkabout mini golf seated if you really wanted to, but it's better standing in place and getting the full immersion experience. And all they did was lean into the immersion of VR a little bit more and the fact that you you don't have to do giant movements in VR, but little ones will suffice. And they po- perfectly line up with the precision that you're able to get out of gestural movement. So uh, I, I think... It, while we're having this discussion, while Heaney and Air are having this discussion, uh, I'm just going to note here that Mark Zuckerberg is in a courtroom right as we are recording this, talking about the attempted acquisition of Supernatural for Meta. That's a very active experience, obviously. It's related to Beat Saber, which again is a very active experience. And uh there's arguments and debate to be made in a courtroom right now about just what percentage of VR right now is sitting at your desk doing productivity and trying to have infinite screens in front of you, multiple displays, versus how much of it is this active section of VR where people are doing tons and tons of movement. Very, very interesting thing that we're going to keep coming back to. Yeah, um, I think if you look at the top played apps on Quest, they actually do show you what you're being played the most right now. Most of them do seem to be standing, but obviously as headsets get lighter, as they get more capable of these productivity features, I imagine the mix there will shift. Sexy Sexy Bicycle agreeing with me here and saying that they hate the current Guardian system and they're saying that it's strange that the room setup feature hasn't replaced it. But but the reason that the room setup feature can't replace it is because it just takes so much longer. You can draw a Guardian in five or ten seconds, but because this room setup process is trying to get you to do a lot more than just define a space, you're defining furniture and walls, it does take a lot longer. But I, I really suspect and very much so hope that if they can achieve this automatic room setup they're talking about here, then it can replace Guardian because presumably how this will work is you will look around your room panning your head somewhat slowly it will you know scan in the walls scan in a basic bounding box for your main furniture and ask you to confirm you know it'll say is this correct in the same way it asks you if your floor height is correct today and if they can do that then there's no reason for the old guardian system to still exist I think we're ready to move on to the next subject here where Meta is saying that it created an entire supply chain for the lenses in the Quest Pro. So they're saying that they built these lenses from scratch. Now, uh, Heaney, why don't you dive into specifically what Meta said and the significance of it in the long term? Sure. So we should first point out that the Quest Pro is not the first shipping headset to use pancake lenses. Uh, Pico 4 obviously shipped a week before Quest Pro with pancake lenses, and HTC's Vive Focus, sorry, um, uh, Vive Flow shipped a year beforehand with more basic pancake lenses. I would say that the, the, the type of pancake lenses that are used in Quest Pro and Pico 4 are definitely a generation ahead of what you see in Flow, but... Meta is saying that its lenses are truly unique and described how they went through this multi-year process to create the supply chain. So firstly, they're saying to actually develop them, you know, invent them, took two years in their research division. And then afterwards, their research division had to work with the product team to A, find a way to productize it and B, build up these manufacturing expertise amongst existing lens suppliers who they claim were not capable at the time of doing this. So they were saying 
this process in total took more than four years. And they said they had to basically develop this manufacturing supply chain from scratch and advance the state of the art in lens manufacturing capabilities. So given this massive investment in creating these new lenses, which, you know, as someone who I have in my room right now with me, this Quest Pro, the Pico 4 and the Vive Flow, and I would say inarguably the Quest Pro's lenses are the best. I think it would I don't think many people would disagree in saying the Quest Pro's lenses are the best that have ever been shipped in a consumer product. But given that massive investment, Meta is obviously not going to just use them in Quest Pro. And so at the end of the blog post where they talked about building the supply chain, they alluded to using these lenses with higher resolution displays. And I think when you put two and two together here, and we know from Meta that Quest 3 is launching later next year, we hear them here talking about pairing these same lenses with higher resolution displays. So it seems pretty clear that Quest 3 will very likely use these same lenses, but with a higher resolution display. Yeah, absolutely critical there, Heaney's context, uh, in saying that you know this isn't the first pancake lens, but this is very clearly meta trying to more or less get across to all the people who are being wowed by this lens experience, letting them know we worked really, really hard on this. All that criticism that Meta is getting inundated with over the spending and how much they're spending on investment, and even some of the news we're going to get down to later in this show, is related to this this overall situation that when people look at Meta and CVR, yes, they see a market-leading headset. There's plenty of people who can look at Quest 2 and say, yeah, there's enough data points that say, okay, they're selling a lot, but that's because it's priced so low. That would be the, the typical response. This is them saying, we've invested a ridiculous amount, and what you're literally seeing through these lenses is our hard work and our investment over multiple years. And I think over the coming generations, you're going to more or less expect Meta to continue bringing that investment to successive generations of their lenses. And, uh, you know, this is them building up a fan base who appreciate uh, not just low cost on hardware, not just some of the best VR games, but some of the hardware innovations that Meta is working on. Isn't it? Isn't that kind of like a good summary of where they're aiming with this news? Yeah, exactly. And when you do invest a huge amount, you obviously have to first release it in a higher cost product to pay off some of that, those costs. That, that's what we see in all kinds of technology products, where new advancements first come in these expensive products, and then they trickle down over time to the low cost products as economies of scale take place. A lot of people in the comments here are agreeing You know that these Quest Pro lenses are excellent, but they're also pointing out that it's a very weird pairing in the Pro where you have these not very high-resolution displays compared to the state-of-the-art paired with these very high-res lenses, but or sorry, very high-fidelity lenses. But just as the last lenses Meta was using were actually first introduced in 2018's Oculus Go and then used in, in Rift S and Quest and Quest 2, I expect we will see these lenses used for quite a while. Uh, it's not given the way they're talking about this it just doesn't seem right that this is going to be a very short lifespan it's and i also think it's when we talk about the the length of these lenses being used right 
I think we well, we'll get back into it again with later in the subject. We will get to Carmack. I think uh, in our audience, I would expect everyone wanting us to talk about what happened with John Carmack uh, extensively, and we will get into that. But you know, when we talk about the inefficiency or the argument of investment, right? Somewhere, someone a couple of years ago inside Meta needed to say, okay, with our next generation of products the most important thing we do with them is we add pad cake lenses. We reduce the front form factor of the headset to an to a enormous degree. And the moment that that conclusion was made, somewhere a couple of years ago at Meta, then you could start telling the research teams, okay, make this uh, pancake lens experience the best and only when you sort of rally make you know make a product decision a couple of years out and then rally your teams in the same direction do you get something like this and that is the that is so much of the transition we've seen uh coming out of mark zuckerberg's mouth over the last couple months you know he made that comment that they're already thinking about designs for quest 3 4 they're already thinking multiple generations ahead and that's the transition that they had to undertake over the last year and a half yeah it, it, as you, as they say here that just sounds like an incredibly long-term thinking required for this in that four-year process which as we will talk about at the end carmack is criticizing doesn't seem to happen as much in software we are seeing meta pull through on the long time frame with executing this long-range strategy when it comes to hardware but when it comes to software it seems like there's a different idea every year and they don't really follow through on their ideas and then it kind of gets to this place where there's many different kinds of new features and new capabilities launched, but they don't really get fleshed out and built out to the level of quality and polish that people really need for a product like this to succeed. Creative asking this question, how can Pico 4 be beaten? No one can right now. Uh, Heaney's review of the hardware summed it up perfectly. It is superior hardware with an inferior software content library right now. And that's that's your decision as a consumer, and it's very interesting that people that are going to be sort of self-selecting themselves as people who, you know, want the superior hardware and are okay with a few fewer apps uh, versus people that definitely uh, are selecting themselves for the broadest content library possible. Yeah, it'll be very interesting to see who can bridge the gap faster. Can Meta? release a Quest 3 that is just so much better than either Pico 4 or a potential Pico 5 that may come out at the same time as Quest 3? Or can ByteDance build out enough content and fund enough exclusives to make their content library competitive with Quest 3? They're going to be two different competitors coming at each other from a completely different angle and only time will tell when exactly they'll intersect. Creative adding that Pico 4 with virtual desktop is working great. And Wabo adding that the software library might be totally irrelevant to PC VR users. That is a significant thing, right? If you're a PC VR user, that's your headset of choice to recommend right now, right? Isn't it, Heaney? Yeah, that is, Pico 4 is my PC VR headset. Uh, for standalone, I use Quest Pro. But for PC VR, I use Pico 4. And there's actually there's two reasons for that. One, I find its strap design more comfortable than the Quest Pro for long-term play. If I'm in room scale, I need to have it tight enough to not shift on my face. And two, the vertical field of view. I love that Quest Pro widened out the horizontal field of view compared to Quest 2, but it didn't 
have any kind of real serious meaningful improvement in the vertical field of view. And that's one of my favorite thing about Pico 4. It, that vertical field of view, ironically, as Meta's CTO, Andrew Bosworth, pointed out himself a while ago, the vertical field of view is actually more important to immersion than the uh, widening of the field of view. And I suspect that's because your brain can then always see the ceiling and the floor, and thus it constantly really feels like it's in the virtual environment. Well, we really are covering a lot of what happened in 2022 uh, in VR in this conversation, and I appreciate our commenters adding on and catching the little bits and bobs to round out the story. Uh, but it is really we're covering very hard subjects where it you know it, it isn't easy to recommend one system over the other, but we're diving into exactly what makes one platform good and other platforms. Uh, bad, and we are in for a big change with uh, sort of a platform. You know, there's going to be there's going to be multiple new platforms next year compared to 2022. Um, let's move on to this next subject here. So, Meta is confirming that Retinal Resolution is on their product roadmap. Why don't you break this down, also, Heaney? Because Resolution is something people have to kind of rewire their brain a little bit about in, in how it works in VR. And I'm seeing commenters talking about what kinds of displays they want in future headsets. Well, it's not just what kind of display you get. It is very much boiled down to pixels per degree. Why don't you break this down, Heaney? Yeah, so obviously we'll first cover what they mean by retinal resolution, but well, I'll start by giving the quote that we're talking about here. So Meta said that they are developing high-density displays and high-resolution optical systems in tandem to achieve retinal resolution on our product roadmap. And the news here is that beforehand, when they talked about retinal resolution, it was in the context purely of research, and now they're talking about this on an actual product roadmap. And the reason that you uh, measure headsets in angular resolution rather than just what is the number of pixels on the display is that that tells you how many pixels you actually see per degree of your vision. So the example here is that if two headsets had the exact same display, but headset B had double the field of view, headset B would have on paper the same resolution but in reality, only half the angular resolution. So that's the importance of angular resolution. So when we say retinal resolution, that's a phrase that means resolution, angular resolution, that exceeds what the human eye can discern. And that is generally accepted to be past 60 pixels per degree. Today's headsets don't get anywhere near close to that. Quest Pro achieves 22 pixels per degree. The high-end PC VR Vario Aero, which is around $2,000, achieves 35 pixels per degree. And Vario's enterprise headsets that cost beyond $5,000 actually do achieve retinal resolution, but only in a very tiny area in the center of the lens. They use a kind of inlet display there to cheat that, but around it, you will still have a much lower PPD. But the news here is that Meta is saying that on their product roadmap, and that could mean, you know, it could still mean four years out, six years out, they intend to achieve this retinal resolution. And that's something that will be a game changer for VR because it means that you can bring in as many virtual displays as you want and still read text that is tiny, just as you have many pieces of paper on 
your desk, just as if you had many monitors that are, you know, 4K or 8K or beyond. Yeah, so if you fold this in with our last bit of news that they're sort of pushing their lens technology and the way they've tried to increase clarity across the field of view and the the fact that we haven't really had big improvements in field of view over the last few years. It's one of Heaney's uh, sore points. He, he, he's harping on this again and again, week after week. We've had headsets that are fundamentally the same field of view as they were half a decade ago. And it goes back to me saying that at some point in the product development, they realized weight was actually the thing keeping people out of headsets the longest. So they're, they're working on weight. Now they're going to be working on resolution and field of view. And when I say resolution, it's not resolution in terms of the kind of panels you're using as companies like Pimax, you know, put the pi panel resolutions into the name of their products in some situations only to confuse the people out there who, oh, it's got the bigger panel, but it still looks, you know, I can still see the pixels in some situations. Uh, it's, it's this very complicated thing of pixels per degree. And then we've got this new thing coming where we've got eye-tracked foveated rendering. And I remember Google giving this presentation, leader over at Google, I think it was Clay, uh, giving this presentation talking about how they just need, need to get ridiculously more pixels into the actual displays. When you start doing track, eye-tracked foveated rendering, you have this potential of showing every pixel directly in front of the eye of the user exactly when they need it. And then you're talking about getting up to the 60 or so PPD. But what's going to get really complicated there is you're going to have panels that are going to say that they're past 60 ppd but if they don't have eye tracking you're not going to get them to the user ever in some oh, yeah for sure to get anywhere near the 60 pixels per degree these these systems will have to have always on eye tracked foveated rendering it is just not practical to drive that many pixels raw and so there's an interesting privacy concern there in that today on Quest Pro and PlayStation VR 2, you can optionally enable eye tracking to use foveated rendering to get a higher resolution. But on these systems, if you don't do that, you're going to essentially be throwing away the, the capabilities of the system massively. As eye tracking gets better and better, the gains from foveated rendering will get better and better. And something I actually noticed in uh, Andrew Bosworth's recap post where he talked about what's needed for the future uh, and one of Meta's blog posts is that they said that in the future, as these headsets get more advanced and as glasses become possible, the importance of foveated rendering will become greater and greater. So... The, yes, these systems are going to be fundamentally foveated, and people are talking about the idea of, tr of using these systems wirelessly. That too will have to be foveated. You will have to have the uh, wireless transmission send over only in the full resolution for exactly where you're looking at. Yeah, there was a comment here I wanted to read out with Bicycle, Sexy Sexy Bicycle, saying, I'm still so salty that the AirBridge doesn't work with the Quest Pro. I knew I should have just bought a new router, but I fell for the made for meta gimmick. I, I struggled with the AirBridge for a day and a half before I went back to all the materials and realized that 
they never actually outright said that the AirBridge works with the Quest Pro. I mean, that's how stupid I was, uh, you know, not paying attention to that. And it is miserable uh, that they would launch that whole product without actually making it possible. But I do want to put a shout out and give credit where it's due to Guy Godin, uh, who bought that product immediately to see how it compares to his product and did kind of give us a warning there that the software wasn't quite uh, wasn't quite ready uh, for that product. But, you know, they say they're going to get there. They're working on it. Yeah, they do say that it will support Quest Pro sometime next year. But I, I very much so agree with you. Bizarre timing to launch the product just before Quest Pro and not support it. I think what was probably supposed to happen is that that was probably supposed to come out a year beforehand and then you had all of the issues with the supply chain crisis and it obviously delayed the product significantly to the point where it's now only available at the worst possible time. Uh, the other thing is you would expect that a adapter for Quest Pro to really take advantage of it would support Wi-Fi 6E and that new 6 gigahertz frequency because it's a that frequency band actually is not designed to go long distances anyway. And what basically the advantage there is you can get much higher bandwidth by trading off the ability to penetrate walls and the ability to go further distance. So it would be absolutely ideal for a wireless VR transmitter. So will we see an AirBridge Pro in the future? Maybe. I'm seeing, let's see, where is it? Daniel saying, I no longer notice any compression artifacts using virtual desktop. And I that relates to some discussion that was earlier in the chat where people are trying to pick their headset because they love that DisplayPort no compression system. And that, that was there on that transitional product from Pico before they rolled out the Pico 4. But as Heaney has pointed out from his eyes in hands-on demos, some of the, you know, if you have really good hardware, some of the desire for a display port versus compression debate is a little bit overblown uh, in some respects, right? Yeah, for, for sure. If you're using a virtual desktop or Airlink with high-end hardware, so, you know, a Wi-Fi 6 router, and you're able to put up that bit rate to a very high level... The, the, it's very, very difficult to notice. And I am someone who is actually somewhat of a compression snob. I'm the type of person that likes to watch 4K Blu-rays over Netflix streaming because I do care so much about compression. So, I, you know, I'm not making this up and I'm not just someone who isn't as capable of seeing compression. But there definitely is this kind of idealized idea of raw display port and HDMI being just so, so much better than compression. And with you know, even current technology, it's not true. And in future, when we get more advanced compression algorithms like uh, AV1 and H.266, and when we get much higher bandwidth Wi-Fi 7, I suspect this issue is going to, com the gap is going to completely narrow to almost nothing. I don't think there is a future in these completely raw systems. And even the, the people think that these systems are completely raw, they're not. Even modern DisplayPort versions are, are doing some sort of uh, basic compression to get the kind of uh, resolutions that it supports these days. Yeah, we are at the hour mark here of our show, but we've got probably our three biggest subjects to cover coming up next. We've got a lot of people tuning in. I think we're going to be finishing off the year in our streams here from the VR download. Very, very strong. But I do want to basically make a personal request out there. Please like and share this link out with others. Get any of your friends who are getting into VR for the first time this year. 
you know, get them familiar with what we're doing here. Let them know they can ask questions. We would love to make sure our, uh, you know, we're helping all of those new people getting into VR in the near future off on the right foot. So let's talk about Microsoft teasing HoloLens 3's improvements, yet they're not there yet. Uh, kind of a weird time for Microsoft to say anything, but I guess I guess I am, you know, appreciative that at least they said something. Yeah, this was a very strange one. It was buried deep in a blog post announcing new Microsoft Teams integrations with HoloLens that you can see in this screenshot. And it was Microsoft's new figurehead for mixed reality uh, kind of introducing themselves in a way uh, while giving a kind of strategic overview. And what they said is that uh, what they hear from customers is that they don't want to replace their device every two years because it causes too much churn. No one wants to be obsoleted for 10% better capabilities. They don't need a successor yet, but they want to know it will be there at the right time, he said. So he then said, Microsoft is pushing forward on core technologies, display, tracking, sensors, battery life, and said, we're just looking for the right design point to make a meaningful update. They want a successor device that's going to enable an even higher return on investment. So we, we see there an indication of the areas they expect in the successor, better display, better tracking, better sensors, and better battery life. But even three years on from the release of HoloLens 2, they don't feel it's the right time. Now, the background to this is that we've seen reporting over the past year that suggests that Microsoft actually already had a HoloLens 3 in development that was then canned in favor of a Samsung partnership, which then reportedly went south, and Samsung is now reportedly working on its own headset separately from Microsoft. There was obviously leadership turnover in that Alex Kipman left Microsoft after uh, allegations of inappropriate behavior, and so the Microsoft is reportedly now back on track to release a product that is different from what that first HoloLens 3 would have been and obviously isn't going to be able to come out anytime soon. AKA making this comment, funny how the HoloLens videos make it look like it has a big field of view. That is very, very tricky in marketing for AR overall, and it is fundamentally a uh, discussion that happens with almost anyone who's working in AR uh, what is your field of view should be the very first uh, and last questions out of your mouth uh, when you're doing a demo with future hardware for AR, because it is such a, a frustrating thing. You know, I, re I remember going through Magically One demos and them defending the field of view as limited as it was. And going from a VR headset to that limited field of view, it's just completely off-putting to deal with that. And but I'll, I'll take it even a step further beyond the field of view sort of issue. I don't, I don't feel like HoloLens as a name grabs me like things like Flow or Quest. Uh, I, I don't. It's hard for me to imagine that being the brand they use for a consumer gadget when they get there. Really, I've, I've, I really like the HoloLens brand, but I guess that's just completely subjective. But yeah. it is a great point, the, the field of viewpoint. Uh, if you're watching, you can see on screen here uh, a comparison of where HoloLens 2's field of view lands in comparison to a Lynx R1, which is an upcoming mixed reality headset that works similar to Quest Pro in that it uses cameras on the outside to reconstruct a view of the real world. Uh, I'll show another image here that kind of shows you 
even the market leader in see-through AR, so using a transparent display, Magic Leap 2, is nowhere near to typical VR, and neither is, of course, yet near to where the human eyes field of view is. So I completely agree that I would love to see more honest marketing from Microsoft and others about the field of view of these transparent headsets. And what I really wonder is, will Microsoft stick with the transparent optical system that they have been the last major tech company to stick with, or will they do what it looks like Apple is doing, what what Meta is obviously doing, and what Google is reportedly doing? And in the in the meantime, before it is possible to build these wide field of view see through headsets, will they build their own pass through headset? Uh, Fant use Archer asking any idea when Microsoft starts the official game set Game Pass support in Quest Two and Pro? That was alluded to as being something sort of into next year quite a bit wasn't it Heaney that that sort of bit of the part partnership it wasn't given a real specific timeline yeah I think as well as the office integration and the Windows 365 integration these things were talked about as a kind of multi-year partnership it was what we saw connect was not Microsoft saying you know these things are all ready to go it was this is our new VR strategy. We are partnering with Meta, and here's what we're going to be able to do in that partnership in the coming years. I think we're probably ready to move on to our last two subjects here with a very big one here leading into CES in January. So HTC Vive is teasing design and features of a Quest Pro competitor. Why is this a Quest Pro competitor, Heaney, and not a Quest 2 competitor? So the first reason is the price that they're alluding to here. Uh, HTC actually gave a very interesting quote to The Verge about pricing in that they, you know, The Verge was obviously asking, is this going to be something that's around the pricing of Quest 2 or Pico 4? And here's what HTC said. They said, we're in an era when consumer VR headsets have been massively subsidized by companies that are trying to vacuum up and take personal data to provide to advertisers. We don't believe the way that we want to approach it is to compromise on privacy. Now, it doesn't really take much reading between the lines to, to say that the answer to that question is, no, it will not be priced around the same price as Quest 2. But it's also the capabilities that HTC is talking about here. So they're saying that this is going to be a headset that has color pass-through like Quest Pro and a slim and light design that looks from this image to be even slimmer than what you see in a Quest Pro. They're also saying that unlike Quest Pro's color pass-through, theirs will have sufficient quality to be able to read your phone screen or your laptop screen. And that would be a step change in capability. And finally, they're saying that this headset will have the depth sensor. So presumably they will be able to use that depth sensor to do the kind of automatic room meshing that we were talking about earlier in the show. All of those things add up in cost. This is It does not look like this will be a cheap headset. And HTC has never priced their products in VR or even in the mobile market as these kind of very low margin uh, market eaters. They've always looked to make a healthy margin on their hardware. Uh, there was a rumor to, sadly, it's Bradley, the YouTuber, saying that this thing would be priced at over $1,000. We obviously don't know the veracity of that, but that's what I probably would expect we'll see in terms of the pricing here. Yeah, it would be hard to imagine it being cheaper than Quest Pro, given we know it could be close. It could match it 
uh, apples to apples using my uh, darn it. I did, I've been trying not to say that uh, after commenters pointed out that me leaning on that phrase. But uh, I do think, you know, it's, it's tr- Meta is not known for pricing their products for profit. Whereas HTC is known for that. They've made this this stand multiple years in a row that they are trying to seek profit upfront on hardware. That was the source of their sort of original partnership with with Valve was Valve was making the software for this device and they're obviously benefiting from all the sales on Steam. And then HTC benefits from the sale of the HTC Vive hardware. What I'm having, what I'm struggling with here uh, Heaney is that this feels like rehashing an experiment that was already run. So we had the situation where HTC was out there first with room scale tracking hand controllers, about six months of a lead over the Oculus Rift matching feature for feature, some of those things. So getting the touch controllers out there and getting multi-camera tracking so you could really step out of your small little play space. HTC was out there in the lead with this uh, awesome platform that you could build amazing apps for uh, first, right? So there's a whole generation of software that was Steam first, uh, because it was built for that experience. And then later they added on Rift. But what we saw over that period following 2016, over 2017 to 2018, was meta, meta hammering price. So while they got their software up to snuff with what was provided by HTC and Valve, they also just basically halved the price of the Rift below what the competition could provide and they won, right? They sold more Rifts. They sold more Rift S's, and then they moved right onto the Quest as a completely standalone system that only had the PC as an add-on. How? Why do we think HTC is going to change the story here? Well, to kind of first expand on your point of why they might not change the story, it wasn't just about price when it comes to how the Rift and Touch eventually overtook the HTC Vive. There was also the other equation, which was content, that Meta not only shipped Touch and Rift and Touch with these free games, but started funding games that people actually wanted to play. Whereas the Vive was left in a situation where even two, three years on, the content that was most attractive was still those same launch titles that were initially billed as just initial experiments. When it comes to the pricing here, you know, you initially said... we. We don't expect this to be cheaper than Quest Pro, do we? I think it really could be because there's no indication that this has face and eye tracking, which are very expensive features. There's no indication that this will have self-track controllers. We do know that it will support tracked controllers and the leak that came to Sadly It's Bradley a few months ago suggested that it will have those same Quest 2-like controllers that are seen in Vive Focus 3. I think it's very possible we see this thing land at either $1,000 or $1,200. And then that way it becomes a cheaper alternative to Quest Pro that has better color pass-through that can actually be used in a practical sense. And if this depth sensor is utilized well and utilized before Meta can come out with their software-based solution, does better mixed reality. So it's still going to be stuck with the problem that Pico in many ways is stuck with in that 
It doesn't have access to the Quest Store, so HTC is going to be playing catch-up on content. But when it comes to hardware, when it comes to the use cases that go beyond gaming, that Quest Pro is being shipped around, I do think HTC potentially could have a competitive product here. But we need, obviously, to see the details. We need to get hands-on. This is just a very initial tease. But unlike something like the Vive Flow, which was just so niche because of those lack of controllers, because of the lack of a serious onboard chip, this looks like it could really be a product that people really actually want to purchase. Yeah, so I think I misspoke there. So I'll make a correction to my statement of not knowing that it's priced uh, in that same range. What I mean to say is I think there's going to be a range there between 1000 and 1500 that I would expect this to drop at. And the question is how uh, aggressive HTC wants to be versus going with their normal sort of must-make-profit uh, aim. And then there's these few comments that I want to respond to. So Marcellus saying, if it has the feature where I can plug in my Steam Deck and play on a screw, huge screen in VR, I'm in. I think that's a really interesting idea. Um, and it would be kind of in line with what the flow already does to a certain extent, Heaney. So I, I like that as an idea because it, it it's also a really interesting flip on this narrative that has developed between uh, Valve being this software-driven company and now moving more into their own platform versus HTC uh, kind of struggling because it doesn't have the software platform or at least that existing user base to build on. Uh, that would be an amazingly interesting change to the dynamic between HEC and Valve. And then Artful adding this comment, they will sell it with 12-month subscription to Vive Port Infinity. That too is a really interesting suggestion and we will have to see how well they bundle that, how they market what's in that bundle. If they can really get the right number of games built into that subscription and each headset sold is bundled with that 12-month subscription, then you've got a really, really, really interesting offer that could make a lot of people scratch their heads. But it's still, uh, there's still going to be a gap between what a Quest 2 does and what you can do with that subscription built in. I, I, I I can't overstate how hard meta has worked to get the absolute bottom dollar price for their system up front uh with you know obviously some concessions to be made right we talk a lot about the strap the strap is great to use in a lay down position not a lot of people are going to use in that position when you're uh you know it's a it's better when you have this better add-on system uh, for a lot of people and a lot of use cases, but it's not included in the core price. If this thing is anywhere in that range of, let's say, $800 to $1,700, anywhere in that range, it's still going to access probably a smaller market than what a Quest 2 can access, even if it is the better overall uh, choice. But yeah, that's why I started by saying, and in our headline we said, this is a Quest Pro competitor. There's no way that this thing's price can compete with Quest 2. This will never compete with 
people who are looking to spend a few hundred dollars and jump into VR. This is supposed to compete with the people who want a much better experience, people who want a much more comfortable and slim headset that is capable of mixed reality and pass-through and is able to do these use cases we talk about so much of having your multiple monitors from your PC about doing these things that are beyond just the basic gaming of Quest 2 and Pico 4. And that's, you know, HTC is never going to be or I wouldn't say never, but it's very, very unlikely that HTC will ever be in a position to compete with the mass market of Quest 2 and Pico 4. But they do see that with Quest Pro and with products upcoming like Apple's headset, there is a a smaller but still significant market opening of prosumers, people who do want to spend, finally, people who do want to spend 1000 to 2000 on a headset at scale, whereas when HTC was trying to do this originally, the market just wasn't big enough, and the and the products just weren't capable enough to support those kind of prices. Yeah, I'm just thinking forward to sort of our recommendation, right? And it is going to boil down to how much they pack into their five port store and to their five port infinity subscription if they do indeed go that route and there is this there's this fundamental question from andrew asking do we know more about how and when htc plans to announce this at cs yes we do they're going to hold a keynote on the thursday of ces uh but the follow-on question andrew is asking is this something we will be able to watch as uh someone who stood in the audience at CES for multiple years of HTC's announcements. They have been all over the board on whether they stream it themselves or just rely on a journalist in the audience to hold up their phone camera and hope that the crummy cellular connection will carry enough of this live stream over the internet. I would, you know, given that we know that they've been hiring and have people who, uh, know that experience is horrible. I hope that they actually stream the experience themselves uh, and actually get that video out there. But I, I haven't seen them detail whether there's going to be live video yet. I wonder what people you could possibly be talking about there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, uh, a little know, bit of course. hints there. Well, I, I actually don't know. Uh, so obviously, uh, Jamie Feltham, our former uh, co-worker, went over to HTC. I don't know too much about what he's doing over there at HTC, but I uh, very much will be asking him after this announcement comes out uh, how much of a hand in uh, getting ready for this product announcement he had because uh, they could really surprise a lot of people who have sort of wrote them off uh, in a big way with this new product. Yeah, I think the just coming back on the Viveport Infinity thing, that is a really interesting potential differentiator here where right now we don't really talk about a lot the fact that the pricing of VR is not just the hardware. So yes, you get that Quest for $400, but then when you want to access content, unless you're just sticking to the free stuff, you know, you're paying $20, $30, $40, and that's no different from a console, but it's very different to what people are used to on mobile platforms, which are a lot bigger than consoles. And it's very different to what people are used to on the web, where everything is free and supported by advertising. So if HTC can offer a Viford Infinity subscription that is, you know, $10 a month, $20 a month, and give you access to a bunch of these games that you would otherwise have to purchase outright on Quest, that could be very attractive for people who are looking for high-quality hardware but don't want to constantly have to keep investing in games and just want to try out what's available. But as you said, it completely depends on what games are actually going to be available on that subscription. 
Yeah, I think we are getting close to moving on to our last big, big subject here. I think our audience has been very patient not getting into it. I've been personally pretty patient because it has occupied a lot of my brain power over the last couple of days thinking about the significance of this bit of news. Any comments you want to respond to or should we dive right into it, Heaney? I think we can dive right into that final topic. I was just bringing up that Carmack image. Yeah, so John Carmack, the one of the creators of Doom and uh, a absolutely instrumental figure in the history of 3D gaming in general, went on to become a rocket scientist, taught himself rocket science in order to launch rockets as part of Armadillo Aerospace, where he more or less spent all of his money. Uh, you know, I'm gonna, if, if I'm wrong on any of this, John Carmack, if you somehow get this clip and I get anything wrong, please correct me. But he spent an extraordinary amount of money at Armadillo Aerospace uh, and then uh, you know, exploring rocket science and whether he could have a competitor to SpaceX and then uh, went straight from that to building up his fortune again by becoming part of the Oculus team very early on. Um, I, he quit, he quit Meta, you know, he was the CTO there uh, on paper, that was his title, um, but he's always been sort of an advisor, a consultant to the leadership at Meta. He stood out of the direct line of reporting and uh, kind of put in his final resignation letter and said, I'm done. Now he's going to focus on building AI full time. Heaney, I've talked a lot here and I have a lot more to say. What do you think of what has happened here? Well, I was just going to point out that this is kind of a final step in his slow departure. So for those first years from 2012 and onwards to a few years ago, he was the CTO of Oculus. And then a few years ago, he became the consulting CTO where he said he was only spending a small amount of his time on uh, VR and he had already started to move to looking at AGI. So for the past few years, he has only been a consultant. But for those for those first years and for the, the years of building out uh, Gear VR and Oculus Go, he was very much so an actively involved member of this company. And obviously, from the very start, he was one of the reasons that the Oculus Kickstarter even occurred and was successful. Palmer Lucky took the huge bet of sending Carmack his prototype hardware for free with no strings attached to test out. And Carmack obviously then joined as CTO and pioneered some of the fundamental technologies that are running in every VR headset today. And I don't just mean from Meta, I mean every VR headset today uses things like Time Warp that Carmack was so instrumental behind. Uh, he developed a lot of the techniques and approaches that mobile VR use. He was one of the first people to really be a champion of mobile VR back when it was almost just uh, something to laugh at, a gimmick. When people thought VR was a serious thing that happened on gaming PCs and the only th realm of mobile VR was Google Cardboard. It's the only type of mobile VR and it will never be anything serious. Carmack, back then, as early as 2013 and before, was talking about his goal of a all-in-one headset that used a smartphone chip and ran Android with inside-out tracking. And that's how he saw VR becoming popular. And years later, you know, we have the Quest and all of the other standalone headsets. 
And it seems like an obvious idea in hindsight, but it very much so wasn't. And there were, there were people all throughout Oculus and throughout the VR community who never thought that mobile VR would take off and become what it is today, where it is pretty inarguably the dominant form of VR. It is the default form of VR today. When we talk about a company entering VR, by default, you expect that you're talking about a standalone headset. But Carmack was there making that software stack a thing and building it up from being just an accessory for a Samsung phone in Gear VR through to a basic rotational headset in Oculus Go and then into the fully featured Oculus Quest that obviously launched the modern form of VR we're all talking about today. So a lot of places I want to go, a lot of things I want to talk about here. Um, I... The, the the comments are going off in a lot of different directions and a lot of people wondering uh, what the significance of this is. I played this thought experiment out in my head and I want to go through the thought experiment real quick before I get back to some of my personal experience interacting with Carmack over the years at some of these conferences. But the thought experiment goes like this. Exactly how much money would it cost a platform to get John Carmack to go and put down AI for something like three to four years and to go and build out an Android-based competing VR platform. Now, uh, that's the core question, and I'm sure the comments are going to go crazy with responses because there's all sorts of things to consider, like non-compete clauses and the fact that it just might not interest him anymore to touch that type of work uh, in comparison to the promise that AI holds to him uh, in cementing his legacy as, as uh, impacting multiple industries. Um, it's, it, it, it's a fun thought experiment to me because you, all these things figure into it of wondering, okay, what exactly would it take a, a person who doesn't have to worry about money to change what they're going to focus on for the rest of their professional career. So he's more or less implied that uh, developing artificial general intelligence, true AI that is smarter than a human in any respect, uh, that's what that's the thing he wants to unlock with his next venture, Keen Technologies, and he thinks he has a decent chance at it. So you go from uh, 3D gaming to rocket science to virtual reality to AI, a career spanning 35 plus years and being a fundamental part of making a lot of those things happen in each of those respective industries. And he's looking at it going, I, I think AI is the next big thing, right as OpenAI and all these chat-based programs are doing incredible things with AI as we speak. So he's more or less right on with where all of the investment is in Silicon Valley right at this moment. And he's moving away from VR. So a lot of the people that aren't paying attention to this might look at this and go, uh, is VR dead? Is this another sign that VR is dead? They've lost John Carmack. And that would be an, a way, way, way overly reductive and simplistic view of exactly what's going on here, right? Um, but it still goes back to this fun... Uh, question, how many billions would it take to, and, and how quickly could he deliver it? Because I go back to this question, Heaney, where 
there the world needs more quest you know more android based standalone platforms with all of the games that are on standalone and he could build it in record time with a team that would be very very small couldn't he yeah i I just think it's been years, perhaps decades, since Carmack was motivated by money. I think if you look at the projects that he takes on, he's not any more limited by that. And he's talked about this before as saying that he is no longer, you know, he's been paid so well for so long and had so much equity in the companies that he's been involved in that he's no longer restricted by what will pay me the most. He has been, for all this time, decided what is the work that interests me enough to keep working? And I do think there is a parallel universe in which he'd stayed on at Meta for a lot longer. But if you look at, obviously, his resignation post and what he's been saying in his Connect talks for years, he just doesn't feel at home in, an, in a slow-moving, massive bureaucracy like Meta. He needs he prefers to be in a... Sorry? No, sorry. Go ahead. I, I'm just I'm getting I'm getting riled up to make my go back to my thought experiment because you're right. No, he's you're absolutely right. You you've been a close watcher of him and and his interests for years. What I'm just kind of let's let's take an uh, an example out of the air. If Twitter and Elon Musk wanted to make a VR headset, if there was one person in the world that you wanted to hire to build that platform for you. This would be the person. Now, forget that I, you know, I threw up this this image. Uh, let's see, um, where by choice he didn't have direct reports uh, at, during his time at Oculus. He doesn't like working with teams. He gets his enjoyment out of just doing it himself. But my argument, going back to this 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 crazy idea of just. Uh, with a you know they there was this joke about what hundred x engineers or ten x engineers with a team of ten, he could probably get you a platform to rival the platforms that are out there in a less time than a team of a couple thousand. Yeah, but as we've been discussing, you know, Pico already technically did that. It's not about just building the platform anymore. We're, I think this comes to a comment that Scratch Glasses makes here, which I think is a great point. He says, uh, or he, sorry, they say, uh, can I pause at the question that does Carmack leaving show the maturity of VR and that it no longer needs someone like him? Carmack's been in this industry for 10 years. He did build up a lot of these core ideas and did build up this software stack for mobile VR, as I said before. But it's no longer about that anymore. This isn't the hobbyist industry that it was in 2012, and it's not the enthusiast industry that it was in 2016. This is a serious consumer market for millions and millions of people. And Carmack likes to, as you say, be working on these direct, really difficult first of a kind technical issues. If you look at the way he's talking about AGI now, I don't think anything would take him away from that. And we do know that Elon Musk tried to recruit him to SpaceX for years while he was working on VR, but and he probably offered him more than what he would be making in VR. But Carmack is not and hasn't been for a very long time motivated by money, not out of some moral issue, but just because he has so much of it that it's no longer the limitation for him. I don't think, if you look at the way he talks about AGI and the potential and how interested he is and how excited he is to be this uh, Victorian gentleman scientist character, as he puts it, and spend his days you know, in isolation building out this tech, I don't think anything would take him away from it. And if he's right, and this is possible, I mean, if AGI is 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 possible within any of our lifetimes, it will be bigger than the entire world economy several times over. I, it would be I, a, the biggest change in human history. 
I, I I appreciate that, and I love that you know you you framed it in that way because uh, I've I got into VR. Uh, I got interested in this this medium because it seemed like the nearest term biggest impact on the way people live, right? I I, I realized that all the the stars are aligning to make this be the then the biggest story that people are going to need to understand about how technology is going to change their lives. And AI seemed interesting and a good idea, but I didn't see the path to actually getting there near term. And before I saw my first Oculus demo, I didn't see the path there either. And CarMax sees that path, and that's what I'm pointing out. Elon Musk sees that path. People in front charge of OpenAI see that path. Like, they're all seeing that path now, and they're all moving their focus there. But... VR is still going to be a huge impact on the lives of so many people. We still believe that. But AI is going to uh, be a force multiplier on top of that even so. So you combine, uh, you get the holodeck. We're, we're going to this path of the holodeck where you can walk into a room or put on a VR headset and say, Give me a room that's about 10 meters wide and populate it with three palm trees and a bookcase and restyle that bookcase like this. That's what all of the AI adds to our VR experience. And you're pointing out that it's an even bigger thing. The reason I just love my thought experiment is you're absolutely right that it's not motivated by money. But he's also, I think, aware of the value of, of what a couple billion dollars can do. Right. I, I went through this thought experiment on Twitter of exactly what I was talking about. And the, the, the amount I came at or that made the most sense to me is basically an Oculus. If you went to Carmack and said, I'll pay you somewhere between one and three billion dollars to go build my platform. Yes, he's not motivated by money, but yes, there's an amount that he could look at and say, wow, you know, I could fund a team of 100 engineers for x number of years and also go back to doing this thing like there is an amount that that you get to that's so ridiculous that he might actually be brought back to the table is i guess what i'm saying i think the real offer he would need is to have some level of control although as as you pointed out not in terms of directly reporting to people but in that when he's giving his view on these things, when he's giving his view on how the technical architecture of these systems should work, on what the priority should be, on where this focus should go, it has to be respected. The tone you get in this resignation letter is that he doesn't feel like he had any impact at Meta anymore. He feels that you know Zuckerberg and Bosworth were going in their own direction, and regardless of what he said, there was nothing that he could argue that would change their priorities, and that those priorities and those ideas and those philosophies of how VR should be technically architected and what the product focus should be was just diverging so much that it didn't matter anymore. So the person in that thought experiment would have to say, not only will I give you all this money, but I will also give you the full kind of control, for lack of a better word, that Meta didn't give. Because Meta already had the resources you're talking about. If you, The Rally Labs already is spending those billions every year and they have these, ten, you know, thousands and thousands of people working on this problem. But as Carmack said, most of them are just not actually working on things that directly give value. And there's far too much organizational inefficiency. Uh, totally appreciate all that. And our commenters are getting to the core of some of my sort of roundabout thinking here with, with 
you know, I put up the tweet that he says he didn't have direct reports specifically for that purpose. And he was he took the title of CTO and never had direct reports and has not been part of an organization that really gave him that that strength to say, you 10 engineers go and do this. And we know because he's proven it uh, for 30 years now that he just likes doing exactly what you said, going to a room and coding it himself. You know, maybe his biggest strength isn't management and uh, directing all that work from other people. All I'm saying here, though, again, is there is a dollar amount and there is uh, the need from competing platforms to get where Meta is at this time. And that brings me back to my my editorial that I wrote where I tried to sum up what this means. So I've got an editorial that's still near the, still near the top of the page on UploadVR.com. Um, my first demo of Oculus VR hardware was 10 years ago. Uh, my first in-depth article assessing that first demo published 10 years ago this month. So uh, over on OCRegister.com, I had my first report. And I actually went and found the audio files from my interviews with Brendan Ereb, the CEO at Oculus. And I found this quote where Brendan was trying to explain to me the basics of what this VR headset was capable of, how it worked. And he says, what you're seeing right now is a 60 hertz screen. So it refreshes 60 times every second. He's giving me all the basics uh, that we now take for granted. And he says, eventually we're going to get to 120 frames per second. And then he says, and that's great news for people like Carmack, who love to get the maximum performance out of everything. Now, this is 10 years ago that he makes this comment. And here today, in the year 2022, you have the Quest 2 VR headset, which Carmack went and worked his optimization magic on for years. And lo and behold, it can run a VR experience at 120 hertz, 120 frames a second, in completely standalone VR. Carmack himself is saying that this is pretty close to the right thing. This is uh, what I had envisioned over the 10 years. And... Uh, there are specific examples. So when we had the physical Oculus Connects, I would search for Carmack in the hallways. And I just want to make a call out for this specifically uh, because it was such a unique part of the early days of consumer VR here that I don't know if we'll ever get back. But at any of these events, after a talk would be given, Carmack would come out into the hallway and speak for literal hours to anyone and everyone who had questions. And if you asked him a question that he didn't want to answer, he would say, I can't answer that. But for the most part, he would answer as technically as he possibly could the question of every single person around him. And any Oculus, Facebook, MetaConnect event that you went to over the years, there would be on multiple days, he would stand out there for multiple hours and answer these questions, and it would it would almost look like a church service as dozens of people stand in his presence and try to get one of their questions in. 
And I was, I saw one of these crowds form in 2015, and I stood there with my with my phone in my hand, recording video of him, and my arm got tired. I was, you know, holding my hand. Uh... Oh, I think Ian just lost connection there. Uh, we'll just wait for him to come back in. Uh, in the meantime, I'll look at a few comments here. Yourmom.com says, Zuck broke the deal with Oculus to begin with. He was supposed to never interfere. And that's a great point. Uh, Zuckerberg clearly initially promised that Oculus would be this independent organization, just like Instagram and WhatsApp. Facebook had always, for its acquisitions, been very, very hands-off, left them to be independent subsidiaries. And then Oculus came along and it was completely treated differently after a few years and obviously over time absorbed to the point where it then just became a division and now today arguably the primary division uh, from Zuckerberg's strategic perspective. Yeah, so uh, sorry, I made uh, the wrong hand gesture to get myself booted to the Oculus menu there. Uh, Yeah, so no one else. I just want to give kudos and credit where it's due, that this multi-hour answering of questions at every physical event and then him speaking for multiple hours at every Connect was uh, some developers out there, some enthusiasts out there sort of planned their entire year around seeing the next download from John Carmack, the next moment that he could really just unleash. There are developers out there that wanted to put their games before him so that they could have them just absolutely ripped to shreds in the most polite way Carmack could muster, but tell them exactly what is wrong with their software at various respects. I, there's, there needs to be a lot of credit given to the importance of spreading knowledge and how good that was at spreading knowledge, and no one else did it. No one else does it at the scale he does it at. Yeah, I think in the professional world, there are really fundamentally two types of people. There are people who the first priority is, you know, their income, their career, their own kind of personal relation to their work. And then there are another class of people who first and foremost care about the work itself, the products, the the details, the quality, how everything's being presented. And Carmack is the I, you know, he is the archetype of that second type of person. And in the early era of VR, there were so many of those people, as well as obviously many of the former. But Palmer Lucky was another one of those sort of people, a product person, just like Carmack. So we did have this kind of golden era for a few years in the early times of VR, where yes, you had these other people who were just the suits that were alongside them, but you had these two dedicated true believers in VR who fundamentally, at the end of the day, over their own careers and over their own personal lives, cared about these products and in VR as a whole with Carmack and Lucky. And obviously, it's a shame to see uh, that we're now in this era where that's very much so not the case. This is now just another consumer industry run by you know suits and large corporations. And there's definitely going to be a certain magic and honesty and kind of truth lost there over time now that Carmack is no longer in VR. Yeah, so Ben making this comment, I love the idea that you don't want to listen to John Carmack. You know, I think it's not that... So if you read his resignation note closely, it's not that they're not listening to him. It's that he couldn't change the direction of the ship. He couldn't... He couldn't... You know, they're listening, but there's too many other things going on that he can't have an impact on that that was too frustrating for him so i think they've always listened but there were other things 
you know, weighing against it. I, I would be curious if it was specifically the Horizon uh, World's effort and the billions being poured into that. That was the final straw for for Carmack. He's always uh, kind of hinted that he thought that was a miss. You know, he's not hinted. He said he thinks there's money being misspent on that effort. But I'm just wondering if he finally said, you know, come on, you just had 11,000 people laid off and you're still making that priority? Come on. Sure, but I do think his his tone about that was a lot more positive this year than last year. He did actually, I remember in his talk seeing a lot of the commenters kind of almost in shock and surprise of Carmack saying, you know, actually they are kind of starting to get their uh, stuff together and they are sort of kind of becoming more aligned with what this product should look like in coming years. And as we always say, Horizon Worlds needs to not be judged on what it is today when it comes to talking about the long-term uh, strategic success or failure of Meta, but on what it can become with its technical architecture once built out. So I really doubt it was something as specific as that. If you look at the post, it just seems to be the general direction. And Carmack was almost always much more focused on that VR shell, the core system home software of Quest, than he ever was on what was being spent in other places. Uh, yeah, sorry, go ahead. Oh, just Ben saying, how many years did he have to talk about latency of the voice chat before someone fixed it? Yeah, I mean, I think it's not just, you know, it's not just him. It's all of the users and a fair number of the lower level employees at Meta who have to, who are having to educate uh, their user base of just saying, yeah, we know, we hear you. We just have to get it into the tech stack at the right time. And he just... His, I put it in the headline, he wearied of the fight. That was his direct words. He wearied of the battle to get the right things into the tech stack at the right time. So a comment I'm going to point out here from James O'Loughlin, uh, pointing out something very important we should add to this discussion in that so far we're almost talking about Carmack as if he's some sort of god or infallible or you know should always be listened to. But James O'Loughlin points out that Carmack has actually made some very important incorrect bets. And James O'Loughlin points out, as I would like to point out too, Carmack would be the first to admit that. He would never himself describe himself as infallible. And one of those really important bets that he was wrong about was track controllers. In the same breath that so many people talk about where Carmack differs from Meta, Carmack was against track controllers originally. He thought that a gamepad was the better solution in the, in the well, short term at the time. That's a wonderful example because they didn't even ship the gamepad, right? They ended up shipping this little three-doff controller and laser pointer thing, which failed With miserably at... Yeah, I mean, like, when you think about the idea that, okay, if that system had shipped... There were models... We, we found patents, didn't we, of, like... Or there was this idea of the, the shell... Uh, that you put into the holder of the Gear VR actually being a gamepad. So you get the you get this thing out and you've actually got the gamepad in your hand and you put the phone back in and you're ready to go uh, with playing a game like Minecraft. But then, I mean, Minecraft was miserable, right? It's It's like, who wants to play Minecraft on touch controllers where the mapping isn't absolutely perfect for the touch controllers, right? They eventually did get it lined up pretty well but again you're talking about multiple years of like closing in on what should have been there from the very start and i don't know there's you there was a lot of lost effort on those competing controller 
input mechanisms, uh, whereas HTC got it right from the start. Yeah, well, I'd say Valve got it right and HTC with a hardware partner there. But, you yeah, know, I do think it's important to, to, to linger on that and that fact that, you know, Carmack was not one of the people pushing for track controllers to be a priority. He was pushing for the opposite, even when it comes to PC-based VR and the Rift. And, you know, had had we taken this policy that we're almost talking about or almost alluding to in our discussion so far of Meta always just listening to Carmack, that would not have been the right decision here. Carmack has been dramatically right about some things, such as knowing a decade ago that standalone Android plus smartphone chip plus inside-out tracking headsets would be the ideal form of VR. But he was dramatically wrong about stuff like the input. And there were other places where Carmack was focused on things that people really didn't want to, to use in the end. So yeah, it, it, obviously we do need to add that balance to this discussion. Absolutely. Absolutely great context to include in this conversation. I think, I think a lot about... I think Zuckerberg in particular, I think he thinks about how history will remember him. Um, he's kind of hinted at that in some conversations. And I think near term about the way history is going to remember what the last 10 years looked like, right? Will people remember the Oculus Rift or will they remember the Gear VR and Oculus Go? Which one more resembled uh, the platform that is going to push VR through to mainstream if it's Quest and it's, it's like, you know, which one was the, the, the father, uh, the, the, the mother of that hardware platform that everyone knows and loves? And yes, there were missteps along the way, but like, you know, I always think of, you know, we never got a true Rift 2, right? There were these canceled Rifts that never actually got out. And there was a very clear push towards standalone being the end goal. But, uh, you know, we had, to, we had these two competing lines, right? You had Rift getting closer there, and you had Oculus Go and Gear VR getting closer there. And then in the middle, you had Quest. But how much of what Quest was, how much of that credit can be given to the arguments and decisions that Carmack was pushing for and how much can be given to the credit of what Andrew Bosworth and Mark Zuckerberg were pushing for. Well, I think it's almost a, a merge of both, but you know, I wouldn't say it was Mark Zuckerberg and Andrew Bosworth. I would say Quest was a union of the standalone VR that Carmack pushed for in Oculus Go and the PC VR that you know, Palmer Lucky and the other Oculus original founders pushed for in the Rift. Quest was this sort of perfect marriage, this perfect middle point, this union of what made Rift great, you know, positional tracking and hand controllers, and what made Gear VR and Go great, this completely mobile-based system that was just boot up instantly and didn't require this PC and had all this streamlined, consoleized software. It, it was. It wasn't... Neither, you know, they were the parents of it. It wasn't, you know, born from one parent. It was, it had two parents. It was Rift and Go. It became Quest. Yep, yep, yep. And I'm, I liked uh, Little Scampy's comment. I don't see a lot of people put Gear VRs on their shelf for decoration. I appreciate that. I think of it in terms of which headsets I was willing to sell in order to affect, in order to afford the next headset. And uh, yeah, I sold a fair number of of the the 
the phones that went inside the Gear VRs, but I think I still have a Rift and a original Oculus Quest floating around in my boxes because I'm unwilling to part with those devices. I'm down to 6%. How are you doing, Heaney? I'm at 22%, surprisingly. Uh, well, maybe I've got more on than, than than you do, or I got I got in here a little bit earlier than you do to set up. So, uh, yeah, we're running down our full batteries on this end-of-year episode here. We've had an enormous year for 2022. Going back to the beginning, beginning of the year, we expected a whole bunch of new VR platforms to be out on the market, but it seems like the pandemic and supply chain uh, were enough to continue pushing those things out into next year so we have every expectation that next year is going to be uh when those platforms actually see the light of day that we expected this year and we do expect to finish 2023 very different uh heaney why don't you recap where we're going uh in the next couple weeks well, the, the last thing I was going to say is maybe we should just do a quick recap each of what we think sort of Carmack's impact on the industry has been, kind of just finish off that conversation. Yeah, you know. that's fine. I'm at 5%, so I'll talk first so that I'll watch you when my when my headset dies and I warp <laughs> out of existence. Yeah, biggest news of the year was obviously Pico getting its platform out into the wild Sony saying and committing to PSVR 2, detailing PSVR 2, knowing that Sony is committed to PSVR 2 was a very, very big thing, even if it couldn't actually get out to the market. And then uh, those, are, those are the two things in my mind. If you, if you take those two things, and then obviously Meta is changing its shape, changed its entire structure from the top end down, and when I think back on a lot of this, I'm, I'm really appreciative that I got to go see, after 10 years of reporting on this market and this industry firsthand, I went to the research labs over at Meta and got to see and meet some of those researchers face-to-face, see some of their work, and get a glimpse at some of their future far-off thinking. It was absolutely fundamental for me to get some of those things in my mind. Pico being out there, knowing that Sony is still dedicated, and then seeing Mark Zuckerberg wear this wristband and basically give this this guess that he thinks that this wristband is going to be better for communication than typing on a keyboard within about six years gives us a real indication of where he sees this technology going and in what time frame. Those are the things I think were the biggest of this year. I think to me, the biggest sort of impact of this year that I think will be seen in the long term of VR is pancake lenses coming into serious products. We're seeing the optical stack, the optical uh, kind of setup that will be the mainstay of VR for the next few years, at least, if not longer. This use of you know, folded optics with pancake lenses to achieve headsets that are no longer bricks on your face. So all the headsets we see from here out, other than PlayStation VR 2, which I suspect will be the last of the Fresnel era, will be significantly lighter than the brick-on-your-face architecture we've been seeing for the past 10 years. And that means that, you know, VR can finally be something that people don't hate using for multiple hours. You put a typical person in a... Fresnel headset like a Quest 2 or a Quest 1 or something and it just isn't comfortable for them for sustained periods. 
pancake lenses being practical and real now means that we're in that era of headsets that people can really wear. And I only expect this to get better and better over time as we get micro displays put in so that the heft and weight of supporting these displays is no longer an issue. The, the obvious thing also is that with Quest Pro, we've seen the dawn of the mixed reality headset era where these headsets that we today call VR headsets, I have said many times in this show, I suspect will just be called headsets. I think that VR word will be taken off because I think the, the headsets of the coming years will be used and marketed as much for mixed reality as they will for virtual reality. And it will just become two modes. You know, Content will either be a virtual reality content or mixed reality content, or perhaps content that can support either or. But that will be more thought of as the software than the hardware itself. Yeah, all right. So I did plug in my headset and I plugged it into the highest output USB-C, but the cord is about three feet long, so you can see it here. Let's see. Yeah, pull it. There's my head getting uh, tethered, and yes, it is a horrible thing. I hate wires. I, uh, yeah. <laughs> so I, I'm, I'm, I'm mad at myself for not, uh, not having a battery pack on my head, but uh, yeah, I'm, I'm up to 4%. I'm so mad at you for not having a 3-meter or 5-meter USB-C oh cable my gosh. for this exact scenario. Yeah, I, well, it's somewhere. It's it, okay. Yeah, so I've got a I have a three I have a three meter cable to send from the ceiling anytime I use it. Yeah, no, I my cats have eaten a couple of my USB cords over the years, and it's always a bummer when you roll over the little USB C port of it with your like you step on it. How many have you have you killed USB Cs like I have, Heaney? Have you stepped on the ends? Yes, but that's why I have many, many of them as backups. <laughs> <laughs> well, I would love to hear any questions as we close out the year. Any recommendations for hardware, software, what we think is going to be big in 2023. We do expect to be in here the first week of January, probably. We have CES coming up there in Las Vegas, but we are still working out our coverage plans for that. We do expect to at least have some presence there, and we do expect to be here soon after the year as we all take our vacations. Yeah, the, the last thing I'd say about Carmack that I just wanted to sort of sum up is I genuinely don't think we would have had standalone VR as soon as we had, had it not been for Carmack, perhaps even VR itself. I think VR would still be something that's happening mainly on PCs and consoles. And while I think it would eventually have moved in to the mobile and standalone form factors we see today, the, the hard work and the perseverance of Carmack pushing that when it really was thought by most in the industry as just a sideshow gimmick was critical to get us to where we are today. Yeah, and let's go with creative experiments comment. I hope Meta doesn't buy out virtual desktop. I think you can probably say that is not going to happen. They attempted to hire him years ago, and if he's still in our comments, he may recap that story. And he obviously moved on, and they, they have their own teams at Meta doing that. I have done that fun thought experiment, though, wondering why Valve wouldn't buy a virtual desktop because it would make perfect sense to integrate that and force Meta into some uncomfortable positions about locking out that content or, or making them hand over their 30% to Meta for, for being on the platform in the same way that, that Epic Games has put... Apple and Google in some uncomfortable positions with some of the stuff that they've done. Yeah, just an interesting sort of question or comments, whether the Quest 2 or PlayStation VR market is larger. Uh, yeah, I can assure you from talking to developers, 
the Quest 2 player base is larger than PlayStation VR. But it will be fascinating to see next year when PlayStation VR 2 comes out, how those active user bases compare. Obviously, it's very unlikely that PSVR 2 will sell more units than Quest 2. But the big question is, will there actually be more people playing on a regular basis their PlayStation VR 2? That'll be fascinating to see. I did see the question out there asking what our game of the year was. Our timer reset. We did such a long show, our timer reset. Wow. It was never um, built to support two hours. <laughs> <laughs> that was our longest stream ever to end the year on. I'm going to, all right, so Heaney, I've got an article I need you to go look at right after we finish this stream so I can see if you agree with our picks for best things that happened this year. I have to give credit to Walkabout Mini Golf. That's my game of the year, even though it's not a new game. I think it's absolutely amazing as a format for spending time together in VR alone together. The development there of, you can go just have a game of mini golf, but if you want a treasure hunt, you can go and do that really quickly and go look for the lost balls on each hole. Or if you want an even harder sort of scavenger hunt you could go to the hard mode and play the fox hunt and the path from just this easygoing mini golf course to hard mini golf course to finding the balls to doing the harder fox hunt with the hard modes it's an amazing amazing thing and the fact that they've got a multiplayer version of mist vr as well as this jim henson's labyrinth course that gives you a theme park that never existed in the real world. That's that's my game of the year, even though it didn't come out this year. That's my personal choice for just having a major impact this year. What's yours, Heaney? So yeah, I agree with you that my choice isn't something that came out this year, but I think my most appreciated game that's had a significant update this year is Vermilion, which is the painting simulator that just launched multiplayer support. And it's just incredible to be able to have your friends in there in the painting studio in real time collaborating. I also think it's the best showcase of mixed reality on Quest Pro. You can just have that canvas and all of your paintbrushes and easel in the room with you. You can hang out with a friend in real life where you've got your paint your painting casted to the tv you can still see them by just looking over with the color pass through they can see what you're doing and you can just hang out while you paint i think that's a really fantastic game yeah great great shout out there for that game and the fact that it is multiplayer and you can have that experience with someone else is going to be incredible i think we will hopefully see a lot of people adopting that in 2023 i think that's just at the beginning of its journey in adopting users and the fact that the the painting there is so believable and just satisfying combined with multiplayer is like this minimum viable product for painting and showing off your paintings in VR. So I can't wait to see what happens next with them. Yeah, I continue to think that those sort of apps that really take advantage of the mix and virtual reality that aren't just, you know, a console game ported into VR are going to be what the biggest and most used apps in VR are over time. I don't think games where you you know, run around a first-person shooter map with a thumbstick are going to be what the majority of VR gaming is going to be over time. I think it is going to be these things like mini-golf, like table tennis, like painting, like playing pool, playing darts, all of these things that just are fun in real life because of the physicality of using your hands in a sort of near-field, detailed way. And... VR can really recreate the experience of are going to be much more impactful. Games that just wouldn't really make sense on, on a screen. The 
games like Demio, games that truly take advantage of your space, games like Pistol Whip, but those are the kind of games I, I'm still really excited for, and I still think there's so much potential as now we have mixed reality for those games to take advantage of your real room. I want to see games, like I always say, where your couch becomes a sandbag and there's enemies kind of breaking through your doors and things like that. I'm seeing it's either Barot or Barrow saying, I use Gravity Sketch to make characters for our VR game, another great one. Yeah, that is a great shout out to Gravity Sketch, kind of an unsung hero for some VR developers out there. Again, my my choice there, Walkabout Mini Golf, in my discussions with the development team over there, they have moved into their earliest concept phases into using Gravity Sketch to concept out their levels. And I know there's a fair number of developers out there who are using Gravity Sketch for that purpose. So if you're in that camp of like being an enthusiast, thinking about becoming a developer, learning the ropes, you, you definitely should put Gravity Sketch on your list of tools to familiarize yourself with because I think there's a lot of people out there that are learning that that is very useful. Iron Man, of course, came to standalone VR. There's a lot of people that really got to see that crisper vision of what they intended to be there with a standalone simulator, right? You don't have to worry about never turning around. Even though you could technically turn around, you still had the wire there. Happy holidays to everyone. And thank you so much for spending this year with us. Over on our podcast version of this, I'll probably start a new season after this because I think Carmack leaving with where we're set up with these new platforms next year, now is a time to think about the last decade being much more in the past than than we did previously. It, it is a new phase of VR that we're going to go into, especially with the idea that Quest 3, Heaney, if they can get that price down to 300, we know that they've given us the range of 300 to 500. But if it's at the same price that Quest 2 debuted out with the Gen 2 of that XR2 chip, plus all of those games we can expect possibly that step change in the size of the VR market, can't we? Yeah, I would say what would also be just as impactful and what they may do is go for $400, but include a few games. As we've talked about on this show before, Meta has acquired eight studios over the past few years and hasn't yet shipped a single game from them because those games are still in development and presumably have been given quite a large budget for serious fleshed out console quality games. So we suspect they're waiting for Quest 3 to really ship or at least announce some of these games. And if they can bundle that, that's going to be a major impact. Just as we saw Resident Evil 4 was the driver of Quest Seal's last holiday season, it'll be fascinating to see what games with Quest 3 do that next holiday season. I think that's it for us on our 2022 live streams from the VR download. We've got a lot we want to accomplish next year. We are expecting an extraordinary number of new VR users to be opening up their headsets on Christmas in the coming days after we're recording this. Please tell them about UploadVR.com. Get them to join our journey here. We want to make sure that we are helping out all of those people get into VR, get the stuff they want quickly, and save money and not spend too much. That is what we aim to do. We thank you so much for joining us on this journey, and we can't wait to see you in the future. Yeah, thanks so much to everyone who watches this show, and we love having this discussion about this fascinating nascent industry that is going to be a huge part of everyone's life in the coming decades.